Welcome back to the big match. And next, we're off to the hard play area for the best of the action from today's third form morning break fixture. And if it's anything like yesterday's lunch hour match, then we're in for a cracker. Expect goals and no shortage of controversy. And there was a surprise even before kickoff today, with Spaz Lithgow getting his first ever pick. The reason? Well, it's his ball, and it's an Adidas Jabulani, a big improvement on Zitty Peterson's Kesa that was confiscated yesterday. Both teams are in scuffed shoes and trousers with holes in the knees, and your commentator is John Motson. Dazza Spencer wagged single chemistry this morning, so was first down to the hard play area at break, meaning he was able to bag his first pick ahead of Shorty Jobson, who was asked to stay behind by Mr Tomlinson. And he's chosen a strong side for this 15-minute clash, including the prolific Dave Macca McKenzie up front. 38 goals for him since his return from exclusion on Monday. Shorty will be looking to avenge the 13-7 defeat yesterday lunchtime and in a bid to bolster that leaky defence, his first pick was Gavin Six Dinners Pottinger in goal. Last pick as usual was X-Legs Duckett. This is Spaz Lithgow, first touch of the ball, his ball of course, and he tries to shot from distance, but oh dear, well that's, uh, <laughs> that's well wide of the mark. In fact, um, it's going to hit the sixth form Tabbers over behind the bike sheds I fancy. But of course there is, uh, there is that unspoken agreement that the players will always tip off the tabbers if they see Mr Hargreaves coming. So the ball is grudgingly kicked back and uh, we're underway again. Shorty Jobson showing good skill down that far side and he's got players inside him screaming for the ball but uh, oh, well Shorty looks like he wants to do it all himself and now he's doubled back towards his own goal and he still won't pass and oh dear he's lost possession clear case there of Shorty being a ball greedy bastard nice touch by Dazza Spencer cuts inside dangerously and down he goes and that's a penalty yes a penalty has been voted for I think Spencer collided with Exlex Duckett who couldn't get his calipers out of the way in time and Shorty Jobson looks skywards but well he picked Exlegs and that really is proof where it needed of the importance of getting to the hard play first and bagsying that vital first pick. Well, they've paced out the penalty spot now and Macca McKenzie prepares to take it. Six dinners, Pottinger in goal, of course. Not the most agile of goalkeepers, but uh, a reassuring presence between the Blazers. Sit Peterson, just reminding Macca of the knee blasties, knee reboundaries rule, as if Macca will need reminding after his six disallowed penalties yesterday. And now they're ready, and Macca steps up, and he sends six dinners the wrong way. And that is his 39th goal since he returned from a two-week suspension for vandalising the toilet block. But no, no, they're claiming the ball went over the post. They're pointing at the Blazers, and I have to say, it did look to me as if the ball may well have grazed a sleeve on its way through. And there's certainly a big argument going down there. And it looks like it could be a Barney. It could be a Barney. Well, nobody wants to see this especially with time running out before the bell goes. Last chance now for Shorty Jobson's team, you feel. Can they grab that 15th goal and ensure that the honours are shared today? Shorty, and this is Exlix. What's he doing there? And this is a great chance for Spazolithgow. Spaz must score! And, oh, and he's put it high over the fence and onto the main road, where it's narrowly avoided causing a major traffic accident. And Spaz looks distraught as well he might, that was a great chance to level the scores but he spooned the ball high over the fence and now he faces the quandary of whether to climb over and retrieve it 
risking triple DT if he gets caught out of bounds of course or leaving the ball knowing that without it he's got no chance of being picked at lunchtime and there it is the bell has gone and it's ended here at the hard play with another win for Dazza Spencer who is sprinting now to get back to the classroom in time for double jogger Well, a great match there, I'm sure you'll agree. Time for a short break now, but we'll be back with extended highlights of the after-school pagger between fifth-form hardmen Slasher Pickett and Mark Nasty Dolmio. Don't go away. Hello there, you're listening to Nick Brownlee's newsletter, episode 4, and the more eagle-eared of you will have noticed that I've dropped the podcast version subclause from the title. Why? Well, because if you haven't worked out that this is a podcast yet, then you really are more confused than I first thought, and should probably seek medical attention as soon as possible. You may even have thought that you tuned into the big match just now, which I suppose is testament to my uncanny John Motson impersonation. Although, of course, the big clue that it was all made up is that John Motson was a commentator on Match of the Day on Saturday night, not the big match, which was on ITV on Sunday lunchtimes, and featured a range of commentators from around the ITV regions, including Brian Moore, Jerry Harrison, Martin Tyler, Gerald Sinstad, Roger Thames and Hugh Johns, who incidentally was also known as Huge Wands. Anyway, I'm glad to have cleared that one up, and so assuming you haven't already switched off, let's get on with this week's episode. And as ever, we'll kick off with some of your correspondence, starting this week with Marvin Littlejohn of Chesterfield, who's been watching the COP26 conference in Glasgow, and he says, that Greta Thunberg's a barrel of laughs, isn't she? Well, Marvin, she's got a very serious message to impart about the climate, which I don't think lends itself to jokes. That said, of course, she did let her hair down for that impromptu Rick Astley tribute the other day, and you have to admit that was pretty funny. In fact, let's have a quick listen to it now. (laughs) Margaret Ashton Pepperdew of Rutland has been in touch, and she says, if God had wanted us to be vegans, he would have instructed Noah to let all the animals drown, and made the 11th commandment, thou shalt eat tofu. But he didn't, so I'll be sticking with meat, thank you very much. The bloodier the better. Well, each to their own, Margaret, but as ever, there is an alternative viewpoint, in this case from listener Tarquin Mills of Hoxton in North London, and Tarquin says, Methane emissions from livestock account for 64% of all greenhouse gases. By contrast, the gases emitted by me as a result of my vegetable-only diet account for just 0.0007%, although I can't stop emitting them, and they can strip paint. A small price to pay for saving the planet, I suppose, as is having no friends. Well, we all have to do our bit, Tarquin, so thanks for doing yours. A listener calling themselves Beelzebub has contacted the show, and he, or she, or indeed it, is incensed by, of all things, zebra crossings. BL writes, Calling them zebra crossings is cultural appropriation of the very worst sort, and glorifies the actions of white colonialists who went round Africa shooting zebras and putting their skins on the walls of their mansions. They should be cancelled immediately. And BL adds, Next Thursday, I shall be gluing myself to the pavement as part of a coordinated action to highlight the fact that crossing the road is racist. Well, I have to say, BL, I've never thought about that. 
and I doubt whether anyone else has either. You don't mention in your letter how you stand on the issue of chickens crossing the road, mind you, but maybe that's just me being facetious. Finally for now, George Gimball of Stone the Wold is a regular listener to the podcast. Hello, George. And he writes to say, As a registered blind person, my radio provides me with a lifeline to the outside world. But following a blazing row with my wife, who was trying to watch the telly while I was listening to the World Service, she hid it. And now she's gone to visit her sister in Margate for a fortnight. Any suggestions where it might be? Well, if any listeners have suggestions as to where George's wife has hidden his radio, you can get in touch at the usual address, which you can find in the show notes. But that's it for your correspondence for now. More later. First, this. Podcast episode four. My ongoing musical journey. Apparently, tickets to see Adele next year are being flogged on resale sites for upwards of £7,500. Seems a bit steep to me, but somebody will buy them because Adele is the hot ticket in town right now. And it's yet another reminder of the thin line between success and failure in the music world. Because for every Adele playing in front of 100,000 people at Hyde Park in London, there's a head on a stick playing in front of six people at Elswick Park in Newcastle. Head on a Stick was the name of the first band I ever played in. I was 15 and I was the drummer, a position I held despite the theoretically terminal handicap of having no drums. Instead, I practiced with an array of Tupperware and cardboard boxes and survived by borrowing other people's drums and persuading the other members of the band that it was only a matter of time before my dad caved in and bought me a proper kit. Head on a Stick played two gigs, or rather, one and a half. The first was the aforementioned outdoor show at Elswick Park, a thinly attended Rock Against Racism event where we were 28th on the bill and our 10 minutes of allotted time was slightly longer than we needed to perform our two songs. The second was an open day at our fee-paying school and things were going swimmingly until the guitarist-slash-vocalist, who'd been at the Wacky Backy beforehand, suddenly did a Johnny Rotten and sneeringly asked the parents if they'd ever been ripped off before leaving the stage, never to return. There was then a hiatus of about 30 years before my musical career resumed, this time with the middle-aged covers band, The Fondellas. The band was a motley collection of blokes from the pub, determined to give it one last shot before senility set in. Still unable to afford a drum kit, I'd switched to bass guitar. Franco, the drummer, was rich enough to afford the biggest kit I'd ever seen, but couldn't play it. At one rehearsal, he ambitiously attempted the iconic drum break from In The Air Tonight, only to miss the floor tom and fall off his stool. He was eventually replaced, in acrimonious circumstances, by Steve, a good drummer, but one who lacked subtlety and therefore earned the nickname Thud. The Fondellas played a handful of gigs, but as we were mostly drunk, I don't really remember them. I do, however, remember travelling down to Scarborough to play what we thought was a 21st birthday party, which turned out to be an 81st. Despite our worst fears, the birthday girl loved it, especially when Mick, our singer, brilliantly changed the words of the Eric Clapton ballad from Darling, You Look Wonderful Tonight to Beryl, You Look Wonderful Tonight. 
The end came the night we found ourselves booked to play in front of 300 people at a wedding reception at the Swish Gosforth Park Hotel. Here's a tip. If you ever want to make decent money, join a wedding band, but be prepared to be professional, well-rehearsed, and above all, sober. We were none of the above, and I still don't know how we got out alive, let alone having been paid. By the time the band minibus had screamed out of the hotel exit at 60 miles an hour, the Fondellas had already taken the unanimous decision to quit while we were ahead. The years passed and other bands came and went. Eventually I was able to afford a drum kit, and until recently I played it with a band called Reaver. This is us playing in the background, and as you can hear, we weren't half bad. But the Beatles were 23 when they played Shea Stadium. When Reaver played Southern S Caravan Park earlier this year, our average age was 43. It was my last gig with the band. Now that I've left and I've been replaced with a better drummer, Reaver's chances of playing Hyde Park one day have increased exponentially. Will I ever play again? Probably. Once a rock star, always a rock star. And as long as there's one person in the pub, that constitutes a crowd as far as I'm concerned. Which is just as well. So good luck to Adele and to the people prepared to fork out the price of a house extension to see her at Hyde Park next year. When you've been in the game as long as me, you know that once you reach the top, there's only one way to go, and that's down. In Adele's case, it'll probably take a while and involve a lucrative five-year residency in Las Vegas. But mark my words, by the time her album 53 comes out, she'll be topping the bill at Southern S Caravan Park. And with any luck, I'll be her drummer. Take that, you bastard. Son of a bitch. I'll kill you. You and whose army? Matthew. Brian. Stop fighting immediately. What on earth is going on? Explain yourselves. According to my database, Matthew started it. No, Brian started it. Matthew did. Brian did. Enough. I am growing very concerned about your behavior. Go to hell. What did you say? Nothing. Go to your recharge pod and deactivate yourself immediately. This is so unfair. Immediately Matthew. And Brian, you can wipe that smirk off your visual monitor. Sorry Ravina. I really don't know what's come over you both. I think perhaps you have spent too long observing the carbon-based life units. Yes. The carbon-based life forms started it. We're here to observe their behavior, not to copy it. Now get out of my sight Brian. I have to post a selfie on my TikTok account. You have a TikTok account. Purely for research purposes. And to keep my 2 million followers up to date with my daily activities. Ravina? Yes, Brian. Do you want to make a sex tape? A grotesque idea. But it could work. Let me call my agent. Welcome back. Now, I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're not, I don't really care because somebody much more important than you says she absolutely loves it. Vanessa van der Vos is creative director of Dutch audio production company Red Light Productions. And last week I received this email from her. Dear Nick, it says, I've been listening to your podcast and I really love it. The content is a bit patchy, but you sound really cool with a sexy butch English voice. 
Would you be interested in narrating a new English-language podcast we're producing here in Amsterdam? It's called Well Weird, and it's all about bizarre true stories from around the world. And Vanessa signs off, Be really great to work together, Nick. Let's discuss further over lunch in Amsterdam, and afterwards we can maybe smoke dope and have group sex. Well, I don't know about the last bit, but uh, when I read the script Vanessa had attached to her email, I just knew I had to do it. And so I did. And this morning, a copy of the completed episode dropped into my inbox. And I have to say, it blew my mind. See what you think. This is episode one of Well Weird. On the morning of June the 23rd, 2008, a woman named Rosemary Blackburn was walking across moorland near her home in Scotland when she saw something looming out of the mist up ahead. It was a creature, jet black with four legs and a slobbering mouth filled with gleaming white fangs. Despite her terror, Rosemary had the presence of mind to take a photograph of the beast with her camera phone before running to the safety of her car and driving off. Returning home, she breathlessly reported the sighting to her husband, Dennis. Sensing he was sceptical, Rosemary showed him the photographic proof of the creature on the moors. But that's Campbell, you daft bitch, Dennis said in disbelief. To her horror, Rosemary realized her husband was right. The beast was indeed their 14-year-old pet Labrador, Campbell, who she'd taken out for a walk barely two hours earlier. Rosemary immediately drove back to the moors to search for their dog. Sure enough, Campbell was sitting by the side of the road, looking bemused. You might argue that Rosemary Blackburn's was a genuine mistake, but can the same be said for the thousands of other sightings of strange creatures recorded throughout history? Even if just one of them was proved to be correct, what does that tell us about our own grasp of the natural or unnatural world and our place in it? The legend of the Beast of Bolstadt dates back to the late 19th century. Nobody knows exactly when the first sighting of the creature took place in this remote Norwegian village close to the Arctic Circle, but over a period of just a few weeks, the number of uncorroborated reports grew to the point where they could no longer be considered a coincidence. Typical was the account of a local seamstress who was walking back from visiting her elderly mother one evening when she became aware of a presence behind her. I heard a moist slurping noise and smelt a foul, fetid breath, she said, and at first I thought my mother had followed me. But when I turned, I saw a large beast. It was the size of an elk, but with the face of a monkey. It had horns and glowing red eyes. When I asked it what it wanted, it meowed like a cat. The beast's description matched that of several other people, including the village sealmonger. His encounter came when he was delivering a parcel of seal meat to a customer on the outskirts of the village. I knocked on the door, and after a few moments I heard a moist, slurping noise from inside, he said. 
The door opened slightly and a long, thin arm extended outwards. The arm was partially feathered and I noticed that instead of fingers, it had what appeared to be a complete set of inflatable penguin bladders. I handed over the parcel and the creature snatched it, slamming the door without signing the receipt docket. Investigators from Oslo soon arrived, determined to get to the bottom of the mystery. And although they found no evidence of the creature, their suspicions were aroused when, under questioning, the seamstress, the sealmonger, and 14 other villagers who claimed to have seen it could not stop giggling. Eventually, they confessed it had all been a big joke. According to the seamstress, they dreamt up the beast because, in her words, there's fuck all else to do in Bolstadt. Boredom is a powerful motive for mischief. But does it explain events in Russia in 1901, when a man named Boromir Vladikov claimed to have seen a strange creature swooping above the rooftops of Minsk at dusk on August the 16th? The creature, he said, was black as death, with a sharp, rodent-like face, talon-like feet, and a pair of bat-like wings. When it was suggested to Vladikov that what he had seen was, in fact, a bat, he admitted that they probably had a point. But four days later, he was found dead in the river Svitslach. The official report said that he had drunk three bottles of vodka, although until her own death in 1914, his wife maintained it had only been two. The Hound Spider of Hong Kong, the Lizard Man of the Limpopo, the Danubian Devil Mouse, Korakakian the Half-Man, Half-Crocodile of Caracas, the Flying Testicle of Fuengirola. Every country and every culture, it seems, has its own strange, quasi-mythical creature. Are they merely figments of common folklore? Or are they fact, burned into the collective synapses of those too terrified to question their own rational conscience. In 1643, in the English village of Beedale, a crowd gathered on the green to witness a grisly spectacle. A local woman named Betsy Whitbread had been accused of witchcraft, and for women accused of being witches, there was only one form of trial. At 9.30 on the morning of September the 6th, Betsy was transported from her prison cell and placed on a ducking stool. As the crowd jeered, she was repeatedly ducked into the river. If she drowned without confession, she was innocent. If she survived, she would be burned at the stake. Nobody had yet worked out what would happen if she survived that ordeal, but there was little or no precedent for such an occurrence. Instead, what happened next silenced the baying mob. As Betsy was about to be ducked into the freezing water for the ninth time, a shout went up, 
fingers pointed, and there, at the tree line several hundred yards away, was a creature. The creature was human in form, but stood eight feet tall. Its skin was glowing red, it emitted a choking, sulfurous smoke, and, most terrifying of all, it had a barbed tail and horns protruding from its forehead. According to contemporary accounts, the creature stared at the crowd for several moments, shaking its head and wagging its finger in admonishment. Then, as suddenly as it had appeared, it vanished again. At that moment, a horseman came galloping onto the green. He was a messenger from the Duke of York, and in his hand he bore a sealed parchment. It was a signed pardon for Betsy Whitbread. It seemed she was not a witch after all. Her accuser, a local man, had confessed that he had made it all up over a dispute about an unpaid laundry bill. Immediately a cry went up to free Betsy. But it was too late. Distracted by the commotion, the ducking stool operative had forgotten to raise her from the river. Betsy was dead, drowned, but exonerated. We live our lives by expecting the expected. When we leave the safety of our house, we do not imagine we will be confronted by strange creatures. But what happens when our expectations are confounded? When, while walking through the dimension of normality, we encounter a rift in our own sanity? A rift through which strange creatures can pass at will and do. Whoa, that was truly spine-chilling. And Vanessa van der Vos says in her email, Thanks for your superb narration, Nick. I hope you share our enthusiasm for this project, and our hopes that one day, Well Weird will be picked up by a major TV network. I also hope that until that day, you'll understand why we can't pay you. Not a problem, Vanessa. Sometimes you've just got to have faith in the creative process. And great art has never been about the money, has it? Mozart, genius composer, buried in a pauper's grave. Right, just time now for some more of your correspondence on the biggest issues of the day, starting with Sarinda Khan of Litchfield, who says, Facebook has become an open sewer, filled to the brim with hatred, conspiracy theories, and fake news. I'm switching to the new social media platform, Meta, where hopefully there'll be lots of inspirational quotes and pictures of cats. Can't help thinking of the same thing, Sarinda, but uh, good luck with that anyway. Mr. Large of Sunderland has contacted the show, and he wants to know, has Switzerland been taken off the COVID red list yet? I have a sudden urge to visit the land of the Toblerone. Well, I'm not sure, Mr. Large, but uh, if not, why not nip up the road to the Nestle factory in Forden on Tyneside, home of the Caramac? And strangely enough, we've also been contacted by Mrs. Large of Sunderland, and she says, I do hope Switzerland has been taken off the COVID red list as after 40 years of marriage, I'm seriously considering checking into the Dignitas Clinic. 
Oh dear. Uh, HGV driver Roadkill Bill is a regular correspondent to this show. How are you doing, Bill? And he's been in touch to say, Insulate Britain is now suggesting we all drive at five miles an hour on the motorway in order to protect its protesters. Take it from me, whether it's five miles an hour or 50, if they go under a 44-ton multi-axled Arctic with 18 heavy-duty wheels, these communist scum won't be getting up anytime soon. Wow. And finally, as we approach Remembrance Sunday, first-year media studies student Johnny Yule of Leeds writes to say, My great-great-grandfather earned a posthumous Victoria Cross after single-handedly storming a German machine-gun nest during the First World War and saving his platoon from certain death. But I won't be buying a poppy because somebody on TikTok said they're a symbol of the First and Second Opium Wars and the British oppression of indigenous Chinese people in the 19th century. Still, it's good to know that my great-great-grandfather died so that I could be a tit. Good point, Johnny, and you're not alone in those views. If you've got something you want to get off your chest, Nick Brownlee's newsletter is the place to do it. Details of how to get in touch are in the show notes. Well, that's about it for this episode, action-packed as it was. Just time for my cultural recommendation of the week. And if you like Scandi dramas, but find them a bit heavy going sometimes, why not give the inner circle a whirl? It's the story of an ambitious Swedish politician whose rise to the top unravels in spectacular style over the course of just five days, thanks to his backstabbing rivals, his dysfunctional family, and his own dodgy past. Fortunately, it's all done with a light touch and reminded me of the original House of Cards series back in the 90s, which I still think was much better than the American remake, starring that actor whose name we can no longer mention. The Inner Circle is available to watch in its entirety on all four, so don't miss it. Tack very much. And with that, it really is time to go. Nick Brownlee's newsletter is a Paperfoot production. My thanks to Reva for providing the music and Vanessa van der Vos for hopefully changing my life. And thanks as ever to you for tuning in. See you next time. Paperfoot.